The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I catching President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Devon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, December 12th. Today, a prison sentence for President Trump's former fixer. The CEO of Google comes to the post and redefining the role of First Lady. Hello? Hi, where are you right now? I am uh, outside of the federal courthouse in New York. Oh my gosh. Today, President Trump's former attorney and personal fixer, Michael Cohen, appeared in federal court in downtown Manhattan. My colleague Matt was there. Yes, Matt Zapatowski. I'm a national security reporter at The Washington Post. Over the last several months at the same courthouse, Cohen has pleaded guilty to a number of charges. They've included tax violations and lying to a bank and lying to Congress. They've also included campaign finance violations related to hush money that Cohen paid to women claiming to have had affairs with Donald Trump. And on Wednesday, a federal judge announced his sentence. So he got three years, 36 months in prison. The judge sort of didn't buy his argument that he deserved no time because he had been such a great cooperator, but gave him less than what the sentencing guidelines had called for. I think at the high end, that would have been like 63 months, so five plus years. So he ended up with three years. And he also has to pay a lot of money, right? He does have to pay a lot of money. I mean, some of it is just paying back the taxes that prosecutors say he didn't pay. One of the charges was tax evasion. So it's like $1.3 million-ish that he'll have to pay for that. And then he got hit with like another $100,000 just in fines for his crime. So that's not money, sort of ill-gotten gains, as prosecutors would put it. That's just a fine. So two, two heavy fines, one for each case. But then there was also this remarkable moment where where Cohen kind of gives this speech about what it's been like for him working for Trump and and the aftermath of that. Well, tell me about that speech. That I thought was the most important moment of the hearing, aside from actually learning the penalty. Cohen is reading from this printed out piece of paper. He is getting emotional, sort of voices breaking, sniffling a lot. I didn't actually see tears in his face, though admittedly it was tough to see. And the thrust of his speech was like, I found myself in the orbit of President Trump, and it was just a disaster for my life. I sort of lived in this prison being affiliated with President Trump and being sort of blindly loyal to President Trump. And now, even though I'm being sentenced to literal prison, I feel like I'm finally free. I, you know, I'm sort of free from the influence of, of Donald Trump. Well, so we already knew that Michael Cohen had, had basically turned on the president, right? That he'd cooperated with federal prosecutors and, and might have implicated Trump. So was this speech surprising? 
Look, yes, we did already know that. And it's not as if he revealed new details about what he has told Mueller's team or what he told prosecutors in New York. I think a lot of reporters were really hoping he would do that because we still have a lot of questions about what he has told. But it was still a pretty remarkable speech to hear this guy, the president's former lawyer, essentially blame the president for drawing him into a life of crime. Cohen, he he suggested that he had covered up, quote, dirty deeds while working for the president. (laughs) Is what he's referencing things that we already know about, things that have already been publicly aired or stuff that we don't know about? So I assume the dirty deeds is a reference to the hush money payments. That's one of the crimes that Cohen pleaded guilty to. The hush money payments to... To, to Stormy Daniels, to, to women who had alleged having affairs with the president, which the president denies. But Cohen was involved in paying those women money to keep quiet. So I interpreted the, you know, helping the president hide his dirty deeds as being a reference to that in particular. But look, it's possible Cohen has said more more to Mueller's team than what we know. That didn't come up at sentencing. I think we were all really hoping it would. But it's possible there are other dirty deeds we don't know. What does this all mean for President Trump and for the Mueller investigation? Michael Cohen is the president's former lawyer. He sort of lovingly talked about himself being the president's fixer. That means he knows where the bodies are buried. He knows all the dirt that there is to know. So the fact that he has cooperated and is apparently going to continue to cooperate with prosecutors is not good news for President Trump. The last couple of weeks, it seems like we've seen this very quick back-to-back of legal proceedings related to the Mueller investigation in terms of a guilty plea and sentencing filings and today's announcements of sentencing. What can we expect about what's going to happen next? That is a great question. And if I knew the answer to that definitively, I think the Post would probably pay me a lot more than they do. <laughs> um, it's been a very busy month. Some of that is just because of the way things have been scheduled. Various court filings were due. Various sentencings were coming up. But I think those are significant in this respect. Mueller wouldn't let people sort of proceed to sentencing like Cohen did today or like Mike Flynn is about to do this month if we weren't near the end, you know, like if they had valuable stuff that he definitely needed to keep secret or he just was thinking about using them at a trial, say, for somebody else, he would want to delay their sentencing. He's not doing that. That says to me, we must be nearing the end. I don't want to say that definitively because Mueller has really, really kept a lid on what he's up to. But I do think like all of this stuff happening now and Mueller sort of letting it happen now indicates to me we're probably trending towards whatever his endgame is. Well, Matt, listen, thank you so much for giving us all this insight. Yeah, anytime. Matt Zapatosky covers national security for The Washington Post. Yesterday on Capitol Hill, Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Google, was grilled by the House Judiciary Committee. I'd be interested in what efforts are being taken by Google's platform, YouTube, to promote diversity and inclusion with its employees. You don't have a clue how politically biased Google is. A lot of the questions they asked felt less like policy discussion and more like tech support. I have a seven-year-old granddaughter. She's playing a little game, and up on there pops a picture of her grandfather. How does that show up on a seven-year-old's iPhone? 
Congressman, uh, iPhone is made by a different company. And so, you know, I mean... And then when that wrapped, Pichai hopped in a car and drove from the Capitol over to the Post, where he sat down with a group of our reporters. Well, Senator, thanks so much for coming. I'm sure you're a little bit tired from the grilling you just got. Including Drew Harwell. I appreciated that opportunity to actually be there. It was funny because Sundar came out of this three-and-a-half-hour slugfest where all of these members of Congress were totally taking aim at him and blaming him for a lot. And then he comes into the conference room and he's totally nonplussed and he seems unruffled. Drew covers technology for The Post. And he said that his goal going into this interview was to try to pin down the CEO on things that Congress didn't. Google has for some reason, been able to escape the scrutiny that Facebook has attracted. I think because Facebook is more in front of people's minds. Facebook feels like its own entity that people, you know, specifically log into. They have their friends on. It feels more like its own package, whereas Google in some ways feels like a utility. It's just like... Just like humming in the background. Yeah, it's just like the water faucet that you turn on and off. It's just like... Googling something has become so innate in how we use the internet that we don't even think about the people who are behind it or what happens with our location data on our Android phones and that kind of thing. So one of the things that lawmakers asked about during this hearing was about Google's intentions in China. You know, they had a search engine, a Chinese language search engine there up until 2010, and then Google pulled out. And we've heard reports that they might be considering re-entering China with a search engine that would comply with China's regulations on censorship and on government surveillance. What did he say to Congress? And what did he say when you all asked him about it? His big repetition is that we're not making anything for China right now. And the right now is very operative because he also said that this has been an internal effort to size up what the Chinese market would look like, that they had at one point 100 people working on something like this, and that currently they're not working with Chinese government officials. We have always, so there are projects today at Google if you're considering doing an important service like search in a market in which you haven't been doing it for 10 years, we had many goals, right? How do you even understand the internet market in, in China? Like, what does it mean? Like, you know, are we very behind? You know, the we, thing about China is that it's an incredibly alluring market for all of tech. And yet dealing with their government is such a dangerous situation for companies because you do have to transfer technology over to the Chinese government. You do have to go along with these things that are very against sort of Western business ideas, like going along with censorship and allowing those tools to be used for surveillance. So it's this battleground between what you want to be a good business and the human rights and considerations for people that you have to deal with, too. And when you talked to Pichai, it seemed like he was a little bit more nuanced on what their broader goals or thoughts when they're thinking about interacting with China. Yeah. Sunar was saying people have a right to information. And we feel like we could give that to people in China. And so that's why we're considering it. And in our interview, he was saying that maybe it doesn't look like a search engine down the road. Maybe it looks like something very different for the Chinese market. It was very 
loud and clear what he wasn't saying, which was that he would never go into China for anything. You know, we are always compelled by our mission. Our mission is to provide access to information, and we always try hard to serve against that mission. And so, you know, it's, it's something which always weighs on us and compels us to explore just because it's difficult. You know, we explore the possibilities of how best we can serve users, and it's always applies. I think it was pretty obvious that they do see the opportunity there, even if they also see the peril. Another big issue that came up during the congressional hearing on Tuesday was hate speech and conspiracy theories on YouTube, which is owned by Google. And the fact that a lot of pretty dark things are disseminated over Google in the U.S. What did Mr. Pichai have to say about that? He said it's something that they still have a ton of work to do on, which for some people was kind of a dissatisfying answer. YouTube is now 14 years old. These are not new problems. And yet you can find conspiracy theories and crazy stuff on YouTube really easily. And the problem with YouTube is that once you watch one conspiracy theory video, the recommendation algorithm will kick you right on down the line to something that's potentially even crazier. And you can just autoplay your way down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories. And YouTube has not done a good job at preventing that. And there is a push for for that, right? That, yeah. that, that there would be some sort of system of being like, these videos are, are spreading ideas that are not true, that are evidence shows that they're false, and they shouldn't be allowed to spread those ideas. Yeah. I mean, some people say, why do you even host any of these conspiracy theories to begin with? I mean, these are damaging pieces of misinformation, super easy to share, super easy for, you know, impressionable people to watch and and believe because, hey, it's hosted by YouTube. But the dynamic here for Google and the thing that Sundar talks about is that we don't really have a good sense or a good policy for what we do permit and what we don't permit. You know, there's obvious things like threats of violence and child porn and all of these things that nobody should support. But YouTube gets 400 hours of content uploaded every minute. And it's impossible for any one army of content moderators to really go through and make sure that everything is being uploaded in the right way and not sharing viral misinformation. Content moderation is an area for sure. I think uh, by no means are we done. Uh, There are areas where we have made significant progress. There are areas where we are still grappling with tough issues. And so how do we do better in those areas? That's that's an area, you know, uh, we probably want to uh, do more uh, moving forward. I um, empathize because it is a hard thing to crack down on bad stuff on the Internet. You can go on the Internet and see bad stuff everywhere. That's just, that's where it is. But YouTube is the host for this. It's the messenger for this stuff. And so when they don't have hard and fast rules, or when they hide behind this argument of not wanting to be the arbiters of truth and not wanting to get into this thorny debate over free speech on the internet, they allow these videos to spread and cause real damage to real people. Well, that's what I think is so interesting. And I think that you could potentially call it hypocritical, right? That that Google is adhering to this attitude of, of it seems to me like agnosticism to content, right? They don't want to be the arbiters of truth. They don't want to, you know, be the ones determining what is a good message to put on YouTube, what is a bad message, what is appropriate, what isn't appropriate. And yet they're also considering going into this country where they would be doing exactly that, where they would be conforming to ideas of this kind of content is okay, but anything that has these other types of messages, we will have to censor. So how do they square their 
willingness to entertain the idea of of going into that gray area in China when they seem so unwilling to do that here? Yeah, that's a great question. And that really gets to the issue where, you know, some people will say, Google says we don't want to be these outright censors of free speech in these areas where maybe it's people sharing stuff that's wrong, but who are we to say? Like, we run a neutral platform. We're, we're not here to police everything that people post on the internet. And yet the flip side of it is Google already does that. They have these rules for what videos they'll ban and what videos they'll allow. So they're already kind of policing. And so when they permit videos on this platform that are damaging, they're making a decision to say this is okay. And, you know, people will bring videos to YouTube. And this is a problem on Twitter and Facebook too. But people will bring videos to YouTube that no reasonable person would think are helpful or beneficial for people to be watching on the internet. And YouTube will say it doesn't break their policies. And so what policies does YouTube need to define for them to get into a place where they feel like, okay, we are helping spread good information? It doesn't have to all be right information, but just stuff that's not these these vile conspiracy theories and, you know, these hateful things about school shootings and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I mean... That's the question. It all goes to the ethics and the rules that these company leaders believe in. And that's why it's so interesting to hear from Sundar on this stuff, because he acknowledges that these are still open questions. And that is, in some ways, a dissatisfying answer because he's the leader of this company. He should be setting the pace for how others in the company react to stuff that can be really damaging in the real world. And yet, it is a difficult thing that no one has really figured out on the internet. And Google is at the front of this because they do have such power over what we see on the web. And the acknowledgement that they don't even have a clear answer is sort of scary. I mean, we're, we're in a place where these technological decisions are just not being made and, and they're being punted down the road. And we, the internet users, are being left to pick up the pieces. Thank you so much, Drew. Thanks for having me. And before we go, one more thing. It's the holidays, a time when the White House is usually hosting parties every night. But this year, the White House holiday schedule seems much more low-key. First Lady Melania Trump didn't even give a personal tour of her holiday decorations which is a tradition that goes as far back as Nancy Reagan. But our columnist Monica Hesse says, maybe that's okay. We have such a set vision in our minds of what it means to be a first lady and the sorts of things that a first lady should do. And so when Melania doesn't do those things or she doesn't do them to the expectations or standards we think we have, I think that it's a good opportunity to question why do we have those expectations to begin with? Are they reasonable? Is that what we should expect the spouse of the the president to do? Now that we're in 2018, we've had several first ladies who have had careers before taking on the role of first lady. Michelle Obama was a hospital administrator. Laura Bush was a librarian. Hillary Clinton was an attorney. But as soon as these women's husbands have taken office, we, we don't allow them to continue on with the careers that they had spent decades building. We basically say, your job is to be a first lady now, and by the way, 
you must do it for free. We don't just expect her to decorate the White House Christmas tree. We expect her to do it to a level of professional taste. We expect her to greet visitors, not just like she's a host, but almost like she's a dignitary. We expect her to be a good public speaker. We expect her to do all of this traveling on behalf of the administration. And these are things that take skill and a certain personality, but they also take a lot of time. So if we if we expect that time, that, then I think that it should be compensated. That's it for Post Reports. To hear new episodes every weekday, subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app or at WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a review or tweet with the hashtag Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you.